Section 18 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in November 2019. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Botany. Chapter 1. Early Development What is the content and scope of the science of botany? asks Professor Herbert Moll Richards in a recent lecture, and his reply is very true. Popular opinion, he says, will answer somewhat easily. Botany consists in the gathering of plants and the dismembering of them, in connection with the use of a complicated terminology. That is the beginning and end of botany as it is understood by the majority. There is nothing more to be said. In consequence, the employment of the botanist seems so trivial, so very remote from important human interests, that no second thought is given to it. The conception formed in ignorance is continued in ignorance. Even the zoologist is at an advantage, for the public is finally forced to admit that it does not know what he is about, while it understands the botanist very well. He is quite hopeless, for, while flowers may be pretty things to pick, they should not be pulled to pieces, and if he does not happen to be interested in dissecting flowers, he is not a botanist, but simply a fraud. Under botany we have to consider all the questions as to the form, functions, the classification, and the distribution of those organisms that are called plants. In the beginning, all that was known about plants might be readily comprehended under the simple caption botany, but in modern times the rapid accumulation of facts has demanded a segregation of different lines of work. Thus have arisen the divisions of botanical activity, which, for our purposes, may be classed under three heads. First, the taxonomic, or, as more commonly called, the systematic side, which has to do with the classification, mainly as established by gross morphology. Second, the morphological field, which concerns itself with the outward and inward form and structure and the development thereof, which may or may not have direct relation with taxonomic work. Third, there is the domain of physiology, which treats of function. Any folk which had so far emerged from the stage of savagery as to stop to notice the world about it, would perforce pay some attention to plants. A discrimination of the medicinal uses of plants is often noticeable even in primitive peoples, and with such observation goes also the discrimination of difference in form, the prototype of morphological research. In our own civilization we can trace back the history of botany to Aristotle, who affords us some record of the plant forms known at his time, though the influence which his philosophy wielded, even down to the middle of the last century, was of vastly greater importance than any contribution which he made to botany itself. Theophrastus gave a fuller account of plants, and later came the inquiring and ever-curious Pliny. 
Dioscorides, however, in the first or second century of our era, was one of the first to investigate plants with any attempt to thoroughness, even from the standpoint of the knowledge of the time. As is shown especially by Dioscorides' work, the study of plants was largely from their use as drugs, and they were described simply to facilitate their recognition. Any real knowledge of them was naturally meagre, and false ideas that clung for a long time, some until comparatively recently, prevented any proper conception of form and function. The contributions become of less and less value as we approach the Middle Ages, the botanical writings of which time are full of the wildest fantasy and superstition. In the 16th century in Northern Europe, particularly Germany, there was a movement toward the real study of plants from the plants themselves, as evidenced by the works of the herbalists, but no attempt at classification was made. Here there was an attempt at the enumeration and illustration of plants from living specimens, and confused and empirical as this work was, it was actuated by an honest endeavor to record, as accurately as possible, actual forms, and not fanciful abstractions which never did and never could have existed. All the descriptions were detached from one another, and little or no attempt was made at classification, though by the repeated study of many similar forms the idea of natural relationship began to dawn in a vague way. The actual purpose of all this plant study was the recording of the officinal plants, for special knowledge of plants was still confined to their uses in medicine. While this movement was advancing in northern Europe, a mainly artificial system of classification was developing in Italy and found its culmination in the work of Cesalpino, who strongly influenced the progress of botany, even after his own time and into the middle of the 18th century. As the nature of plants, so begins Cesalpino's book, possesses only that kind of soul by which they are nourished, grow, and produce their like, and they are therefore without sensation and motion in which the nature of animals consists, plants have accordingly need of a much smaller apparatus of organs than animals. This idea reappears again and again in the history of botany, and the anatomists and physiologists of the 18th century were never weary of dilating on the simplicity of the structure of plants and of the functions of their organs. But since the function of the nutritive soul consists in producing something like itself, and this like has its origin in the food for maintaining the life of the individual, or in the seed for continuing the species, perfect plants have at most two parts, which are, however, of the highest necessity, one part called the root, by which they procure food, the other by which they bear the fruit. This conception of the upright stem as the seed-bearer of the plant, which is in the main correct, also was long maintained in botany. It should be observed also that the production of the seed is spoken of as merely another kind of nutrition, a notion which afterward prevented Malpighi from correctly explaining the flower and fruit, and in a modified form led Caspar Friedrich Wolf in 1759 to a very wrong conception of the nature of the sexual function. 
the next sentence in Cesalpino leads into the heart of the Aristotelian misinterpretation of the plant, according to which the root answers to the mouth or stomach and must therefore be regarded in idea as the upper part, although it is the lower in position, and the plant would have to be compared with an animal set on its head, and the upper and lower parts determined accordingly. Cesalpino's discussion of the seat of the soul in plants is of special interest in connection with certain views of later botanists. Whether any one part in plants can be assigned as the seat of the soul, such as the heart in animals, is a matter for consideration, he says. For since the soul is the active principle, actus, of the organic body, it can neither be tota in toto, nor tota in singulis partibus, but entirely in some one and chief part, from which life is distributed to the other dependent parts. If the function of the root is to draw food from the earth, and of the stem to bear the seeds, and the two cannot exchange functions, so that the root should bear seeds and the shoot penetrate into the earth, there must either be two souls different in kind and separate in place, the one residing in the root, the other in the shoot, or there must be only one, which supplies both with their peculiar capabilities. It may be remarked here, says Julius von Sachs in his History of Botany, that the point of union between the root and the stem, in which Cesalpino placed the seat of the plant soul, afterward received the name of root-neck, collet, and though the Linnaean botanists of the 19th century were unaware of what Cesalpino had proved in the 16th, and did not even believe in a soul of plants, they still entertained a superstitious respect for this part of the plant, which is really no part at all, and this, it would seem, explains the fact that an importance scarcely intelligible without reference to history was once attributed to it, especially by some French botanists. The theoretical introduction to his excellent and copious remarks on the parts of fructification may supply another example of Cesalpino's peripatetic method. As the final cause, finis, of plants consists in that propagation which is effected by the seed, while propagation from a shoot is of a more imperfect nature, insofar as plants do exist in a divided state, so the beauty of plants is best shown in the production of seed, for in the number of the parts and the forms and varieties of the seed vessels, the fructification shows a much greater amount of adornment than the unfolding of a shoot. This wonderful beauty proves the delight, delitas, of generating nature in the bringing forth of seeds. Consequently, as in animals, the seed is an excretion of the most highly refined food substance in the heart, by the vital warmth and spirit of which it is made fruitful, so also in plants it is necessary that the substance of the seeds should be secreted from the part in which the principle of the natural heat lies, and this part is the pith. For this reason, therefore, the pith of the seed, that is, the substance of the cotyledons and of the endosperm, springs from the moister and purer part of the food, while the husk, which surrounds the seed for protection, springs from the coarser part. 
it was unnecessary to separate a special fertilizing substance from the rest of the matter in plants as it is separated in animals which are thus distinguished as male and female this last remark and some lengthy deductions which follow are intended to prove after the example of aristotle the absence and indeed the impossibility of sexuality in plants and accordingly cesarpino goes on to compare the parts of the flower which he knew better than his contemporaries with the envelopes of the ova in the fetus of animals which he regards as organs of protection the doctrine of metamorphosis suggests von sachs appears in a more consistent and necessary form in cesarpino than in the botanists of the nineteenth century before darwin it flows more immediately from his philosophical views on the nature of plants and appears therefore up to a certain point thoroughly intelligible we see in cesarpino's doctrine of metamorphosis without doubt the theory of the flower afterward adopted by linnaeus though in a somewhat different form that linnaeus himself regarded the theory ascribed to him on the nature of the flower as the opinion of cesalpino also is shown in his classes planetarum where in describing cesalpino's system he says he regarded the flower as the interior portions of the plant which emerge from the bursting rind the calyx as a thicker portion of the rind of the shoot the corolla as an inner and thinner rind the stamens as the interior fibres of the wood, and the pistil as the pith of the plant. But, to do Cesalpino justice, it would be necessary to give a full account of his very numerous, accurate, and often acute observations on the position of leaves, the formation of fruits, the distribution of seeds and their position in the fruit, of his comparative observations on the parts of the fruit in different plants, and above all of his very excellent description of plants with tendrils and climbing plants of those that are armed with thorns and the like though there is naturally much that is erroneous and inexact in his accounts yet in the chapters on these subjects may be seen the first beginning of a comparative morphology which quite casts into the shade all that aristotle and theophrastus have said on the subject but the most brilliant portions of his general botany are those in which he gives the outlines of his views on the systematic arrangement of plants all that cesalpino says on systematic arrangement shows that he was perfectly clear in his own mind with regard to the distinction between a division on subjective grounds and one that respects the inner nature of plants themselves and that he accepted the latter as the only true one he says for instance we seek out similarities and dissimilarities of form in which the essence substantia of plants consists but not of things which are merely accidents of them quae accident ipsis medicinal virtues and other useful qualities are he says just such accidents here the path is opened along which all scientific arrangement must proceed if it is to exhibit real natural affinities but at the same time there is a warning already of the error which beset systematic botany up to darwin's time 
If, in the above sentence, he substituted the word idea for that of substance, and the two expressions have much the same meaning in the Aristotelian and Platonic view of nature, will be recognized the modern pre-Darwinian doctrine that species, genera, and families represent ideam quandam and quodam supranaturale. The next great figure in botanical science was Joachim Jung. He was born in Lübeck in the year 1587 and died after an eventful life in 1657. He was a contemporary of Kepler, Galileo, Vesal, Bacon, Gassendi and Descartes. After having been already a professor in Gießen, he applied himself to the study of medicine in Rostock, was in Padua in 1618 and 1619, and there, as may confidently be believed, became acquainted with the botanical doctrines of Cesar Pino, which had died fifteen years before. He occupied himself with the philosophy of the day, in which he appeared as an opponent of scholasticism and of Aristotle, and also with various branches of science, mathematics, physics, mineralogy, zoology, and botany. In 1662 his pupil, Martin Vogel, printed the Doxoscopie Physicae Minores, a work of enormous compass left in manuscript at the master's death, and another pupil, Johann Vagetius, the Isagoge Phytoscopia, in 1678. Ray, however, states that a copy of notes on botanical subjects had already reached England in 1660. He was the first who objected to the traditional division of plants into trees and herbs as not founded on their true nature. But how firmly this old dogma was established is well shown by the fact that Ray, at the end of the century, still retained this division, though he founded his botanical theories on the Isagoge of Jung. Jung was in advance of Cesar Pino and his own contemporaries in repeatedly expressing his doubt of the existence of spontaneous generation. The Isagoge Phytoscopica, a system of theoretical botany, says von Sachs, very concisely written and in the form of propositions arranged in strict logical sequence, was a more important work and had more lasting effects upon the history of botany. The first chapter of the Isagoge discusses the distinction between plants and animals. A plant is, according to Jung, a living but not a sentient body, or it is a body attached to a fixed spot or a fixed substratum from which it can obtain immediate nourishment, grow and propagate itself. A plant feeds when it transforms the nourishment which it takes up into the substance of its parts, in order to replace what has been dissipated by its natural heat and interior fire. A plant grows when it adds more substance than has been dissipated, and thus becomes larger and forms new parts. The growth of plants is distinguished from that of animals by the circumstance that their parts are not all growing at the same time, for leaves and shoots cease to grow as soon as they arrive at maturity, but then new leaves, shoots and flowers are produced. A plant is said to propagate itself when it produces another specifically like itself, 
this is the idea in its broader acceptation. We see that here, as in Cesarpino, the idea of the species is connected with that of propagation. The second chapter, headed Plante Partitio, treats of the most important morphological relations in the external differentiation of plants. Here, Jung adheres essentially to Cesarpino's view that the whole body in all plants, except in the lowest forms, is composed of two chief parts, the root as the organ which takes up the food, and the stem above the ground which bears the fructification. Jung's theory of the flower suffers, as in Cesalpino, from his entire ignorance of the difference of sexes in plants, which is sufficient to render any satisfactory definition of the idea of a flower impossible. While Cesalpino, Caspar Bauhin, and Jung stand as solitary forms each in his own generation, the last thirty years of the seventeenth century are marked by the stirring activity of a number of contemporary botanists. While during this period physics was making rapid advances in the hands of Newton, philosophy in those of Locke and Leibniz, and the anatomy and physiology of plants by the labors of Malpighi and Gru, systematic botany was also being developed, though by no means to the same extent or with equally profound results, by Morrison, Ray, Bachmann, Rivinus, and Turnfort. The works of these men and of their less gifted adherents, following rapidly upon or partly synchronous with each other, led to an exchange of opinions and sometimes to polemical discussion, such as had not before arisen on botanical subjects. This abundance of literature, with the increased animation of its style, excited a more permanent interest, which spread beyond the narrow circle of the professional adepts. Carl Linnaeus, called Carl von Linne after 1757, was born in 1707 at Rasshult in Sweden, where his father was preacher. Linnaeus is commonly regarded as the reformer of the natural sciences, which are distinguished by the term descriptive, and it is usual to say that a new epoch in the history of our science begins with him, as a new astronomy began with Copernicus, and new physics with Galileo. This conception of Linnaeus' historical position, von Sachs points out, as far at least as his chief subject, botany, is concerned, can only be entertained by one who is not acquainted with the works of Cesarpino, Jung, Ray, and Bachmann, or who disregards the numerous quotations from them in Linnaeus' theoretical writings. On the contrary, Linnaeus is preeminently the last link in the chain of development represented by the above-named writers. The field of view and the ideas of Linnaeus are substantially the same as theirs. He shares with them in the fundamental errors of the time, and indeed essentially contributed to transmit them to the 19th century. But to maintain that Linnaeus marks not the beginning of a new epoch, but the conclusion of an old one, does not at all imply that his labors had no influence upon the time that followed him. If the works of the earlier botanists are compared with Linnaeus's Fundamenta Botanica, 1736, his Classes Planetarum, 
1738, and his Philosophia Botanica, 1751, it becomes evident that the ideas on which his theories are based are to be found scattered up and down in the works of his predecessors. Further, whoever has traced the history of the sexual theory from the time of Camerarius, 1694, must allow that Linnaeus added nothing new to it, though he contributed essentially to its recognition. But that which gave Linnaeus so overwhelming an importance for his own time was the skilful way in which he gathered up all that had been done before him, his fusing together of the scattered acquisitions of the past is the great and characteristic merit of Linnaeus. Cesalpino was the first who introduced Aristotelian modes of thought into botany. His system was intended to be a natural one, but it was in reality extremely unnatural. Linnaeus, in whose works the profound impression which he had received from Cesalpino is everywhere to be traced, retained all that was important in his predecessor's views, but perceived at the same time what no one before him had perceived, that the method pursued by Cesalpino could never do justice to those natural affinities which it was his object to discover, and that in this way only an artificial, though very serviceable, arrangement could be attained, while the exhibition of natural affinities must be sought by other means. End of section 18